So we are uh, continuing our conversation about um, how we make sense of the supposed conflict uh, between certain scientific findings and um, what we um, get in Scripture, particularly in Genesis 1 and 2 on creation. And for a brief recap, uh, for those who weren't here or those uh, who haven't memorized my last week's lesson, as uh, you'd be wise to do, um, we, uh, I, Hilton was a little, uh, little loose this morning. Uh, the, the five o'clock Hilton, uh, is a little, yeah, lets his hair down a little bit, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Check his coffee. I heard him say it's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, and... <laughs> so... Um, I assume most of you are familiar with this framework, so I won't go over, um, uh, defend or explain it, but I will say, as we're thinking about this with science and faith, one of the things we looked at last week is how both the biblical plot line and the rule of faith um, commit us to seeing God as the transcendent and imminent creator. Those are kind of non-negotiable ways of understanding who God is. He is the creator. So as we enter into the science and faith uh, discussion, uh, Christians don't back off on belief that God is creator. And when I say transcendent and imminent, uh, transcendent's a fancy word for saying something like, what God creates is distinct from God's self. Uh, so you might understand this better in contrast with pantheism, where creation is all part of God. The tra- view of God's transcendence, what you get in Christianity, is that what God creates is somehow distinct. So God is not dependent on his creation. Um, and which means that creation can, uh, can go in ways opposite to what God's will might be. So, this is important. In pantheism, the brokenness and evil in the world are part of who God is, because all of creation is God. But in the Christian view, with a transcendent God, the brokenness and evil in creation represent something distinct from God. They don't reflect God's character. So that's important to realize. So... We believe in God's transcendence, but we also believe in his eminence uh, as we get in the rule of faith and the biblical plotline. By eminence, that's like a fancy word for saying something like God is involved in what he's created. While he is distinct, he is not uh, completely distant. So distinct, not distant. So again, by way of contrast, a uh, popular views of deism in which God creates something and then kind of lets the clock run and stays you know, hands off. That's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that God is involved and present in his creation. So we have this um, important tension of God's transcendence and eminence, his distinction and yet his involvement. Um, So that's something that uh, Christians are committed to uh, as we enter the science-faith conversation. Second thing uh, that we might bear in mind is that when we turn to the larger biblical witness uh, to God's creative work, uh, what we see is there's not a, um, a kind of one note running throughout Scripture. There are multiple descriptions of God's creative work going outside of Genesis. And often this shows up in genres, uh, styles of literature, in which we um, instinctively know not to take them as scientific descriptions. So when we hear about um, something like uh, the, where's my language, the four corners of the earth, we know, okay, we're not going to, going to get in this conspiracy theory where 
the round earth isn't true, you know, we need to, to get a flat square earth. Um, when we hear about the foundations of the deep um, or the earth's cornerstone, we're not thinking that is a literal scientific description. We just instinctively know um, that that is, is um, more like a metaphorical description. Kind of like when we say something about the sun rising, we know the sun isn't literally rising, uh, we know that the earth is rotating. Um, so, outside of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we instinctively know not to press any of the description of uh, creation or God's creative work too far, uh, as though it's giving us um, straightforward scientific accounts. When we get to Genesis 1 and 2, things are a bit more muddy. Um, and uh, this is where we spent more of our time last week. And so for those who see Genesis 1 and 2 as giving a straightforward description of creation, uh, they typically appeal to something like uh, the references to Adam, uh, who shows up in later genealogies, which would lead them to say something like, this seems like it's giving us something more like history. Or how there's the Tigris and Euphrates River are mentioned, uh, so giving us these geographical markers. Um, or they might say, look, most of Genesis seems like it's history, especially when we get into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, so shouldn't we presume that Genesis 1 and 2 is also in that genre? So there is this, the, uh, the side um, who says, yes, outside of Genesis 1 and 2, it might be poetic, metaphorical, but isn't Genesis 1 and 2, aren't there clues that this is straight, a straightforward description of how creation uh, came about? And uh, as I said, things are not so clear. So, for example, I'll give you multiple examples of why others are saying, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, so, uh, we have, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, has a kind of poetic um, style to it. So, for instance, we have this recurring rhythm and structure. Structure Six times we get, and God said, let there be, and it was so, and it was good, and there was evening and morning. So six times of that structure is not necessarily a typical straightforward historical account. We also noted the parallelism, how what gets created on day one gets filled on day four, how what gets created on day two gets filled on day five, what's created on day three uh, gets filled on day six which again suggests that maybe we're getting something different happening here. I also pointed out how there are other ancient Near Eastern origin stories um, that are presumably around this same time. It's hard to date some of this stuff. Um, but they have, um, they have descriptions of creation that overlap with the Genesis description of creation. Uh, so that uh, in Genesis, it's dust and the breath of God that makes humans, and I believe it's Atrahasis. It is not dust, but clay, not the breath of God, but the blood of a god, uh, but you still see similarities. Or in the Gilgamesh epic, um, there is a snake who tricks a man out of life-prolonging fruit. None of this proves anything, but one of the things we might hear from this is that the, the Genesis author is taking common kind of parabolic fable elements of how people told the origin stories and is saying something like, that might be how you tell the story, but if we were to tell the story, it would sound more like this, where we learn that uh, there is one God, not multiple gods, that God speaks a good creation into order, as opposed to those ancient origin accounts where creation is a result of violence between the gods. 
where the Genesis account shows humans have this inherent dignity. They are made in the image of God to rule and care for creation. Whereas in these other accounts, uh, humans are made to be the slaves of the gods, doing the chores, the work that the gods don't want to do, which includes getting food for the gods because these gods need to eat. And our God from Genesis does not need humans to provide for him. Um, other clues that I didn't get to um, in, uh, in class last week that, again, suggest, they don't prove, that suggest that something different is going on in Genesis 1 and 2 rather than giving a straightforward account. Um, there is evening and morning on days 1 through 3 of creation, but the sun doesn't show up until day 4. So the presence of evening and morning before there is a source of light for the typical evening and morning might suggest that maybe something else is being taught here. Now, can God make evening and morning without sun, moon, and stars? Yeah, sure. But um, do, we, we need, do we need to force that, or do we need to maybe see something else is happening? Or, in Genesis 1, uh, the order of creation is that um, plants show up prior to humans. In Genesis 2 human shows up prior to vegetation. Uh, and so you have something of a reverse order between Genesis 1 and 2. Um, there might be ways of trying to make sense of this, but it could also be the case that um, we, um, or the early audience, would just instinctively know, yes, this is not a straightforward account. We don't have to worry about details about this because that's not what's going on here. Further clues that maybe this isn't giving us a straightforward scientific account. Um, God's footsteps are audible walking through the garden, even though we typically think of God as spirit, not having a body. God somehow breathes into Adam, even though God doesn't have lungs. Another clue, and I think this is pretty important in hearing this, is that the two main characters, besides God, Adam and Eve, their names in Hebrew mean human and life. So, if I were to tell you a story about two characters whose names are human and life, you would almost immediately think, oh, Strahan has stepped into something like a parable or a fable. He's not giving me a historic account of two people named human and life. Uh, maybe something else is going on here. So, if I started a story, once upon a time, do I need to preface that with, I'm about to tell a fairy tale? You know immediately, when I say once upon a time, what genre I'm stepping into. In Genesis, I think the ancient audience might have heard a story about human and life, and they, just like you kind of heard a clue, something else is happening here, they might have heard a clue, oh, we're entering into that, they wouldn't <coughs> have used these words, but oh, this is like an ancient origin account. We're not going to press this too far, but this is going to tell something about who God is and who we are, uh, and the nature of creation, but not necessarily the timeline and mechanics of creation. And then one more clue in all of this, or in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that we might not press this as um, a strict scientific account of creation, um, is uh, there are the presence, there appears to be the presence of other humans around in Genesis 4. If you remember, Cain kills Abel, and then he's worried about the people he's going to encounter who might kill him. And he goes and gets a wife. All this happens in Genesis 4, 14 through 17. Who are these other people? Where did they come from? 
did Adam and Eve have a whole bunch of children that had a whole bunch of children and all this happened in a pretty quick fashion so that we have uh, multiple what seems like cities uh, and peoples around or again are we maybe um, are these maybe hints uh, that something other than a very strict scientific account is being given here so obviously you can tell that I lean towards seeing this as um, as teaching um, ancient Israel and speaking to the ancient Near Eastern world by adopting a, a genre that we're not too familiar with today. Um, but it's something like an ancient origin parable. Uh, I think parable is the closest genre we might, we might um, associate this with. Uh, and I like the parable analogy. Uh, if you want to read me in more detail on this, I actually have a, a little article in um, Perspectives on Science and the Christian Faith. But what I like about thinking about Genesis 1 and 2 as something like parable is that um, when we read parable, we don't think this is a literal historical account, but neither do we think it's false. And I think that's the problem sometimes is when, when I suggest maybe this isn't literal history, the fear is, are you saying it's a lie or it's false? No, not at all. I'm saying it's true. It's just true within its genre. It's true within its aims. So... Um, when um, Jesus tells um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he does not say, I'm about to tell you a parable. Instead, he enters right into it. And yet we instinctively know, oh, this is a parable. We shouldn't press this too far as though the afterlife is literally going to be this chasm where we can shout across to each other. Um, but, but he's teaching something by way of parable. Uh, and this is true even if it's not a straightforward account. Genesis 1 and 2, absolutely true, even if it's not uh, true in the sense of giving us science. It's true in its aim, and its aim is to teach us something about who God is and who we are uh, and um, how creation is good, how humans are made in God's image. Um, and these multiple clues uh, that I've pointed to um, suggest that this isn't straightforward history. Um, but there is the question of Adam, which I'll come to in a second. Yes? I'm, you're calling it a parable, too, but I think maybe something that we're familiar with is like Aesop's fables, and we see those as animals are talking and things, mm -hmm. and we see those as truths, but we know that that, you know, that isn't how it happened, yeah. but it's a truth. Um, something that Sandy um, Collins once said to me that I... That, has always stuck is it's truer than true mm -hmm. because it, it it's the story that shows this truth mm -hmm. but you know you know that yeah. that, that isn't yeah. that didn't actually happen that way but it's truer than true mm -hmm. yeah i think a fable um i think that's another good parallel i sometimes intentionally steer away from that word because it can have baggage yeah. attached to it but yeah. yes yeah. you're absolutely right i think that could be another legitimate parallel so i'm not saying this is precisely just like a parable or just like a fable, but these are kind of hooks that might help us uh, think about what's going on that allows it to still be seen as true, um, even if it's not giving us um, a historical account. Um, let me see, I've lost my, there we go. Um, the next thing, other questions, clarifications before I, I move on, then I'll get to Adam in a bit. Yeah. Just how, how much of this is because it became written word? Like, mm -hmm. these are stories, these are oratory stories that are told, mm -hmm. and probably, knowing how we tell stories, they, they evolve over time 
and all of a sudden now they're written down and they're very stagnant, and so we interpret them very stagnantly. How much of that in the in like would would a Jewish time in the time of Jesus would he hear yeah. these stories and go, I understand what they're saying because they understand how oratory works. Mm-hmm. I would say it's probably less. My guess is that it's less about the move from oral to literary, literary kind of um, telling to more of the move in in world history about the eras that we're in, and so. You know, enlightenment, post-enlightenment that we're in, we want the facts and we want everything straightforward. And uh, but there is, so this is something I was going to get to. But um, even in around the first century, or even early church um, fathers in the first couple centuries, they would say they're not thinking in evolutionary terms. But they would say stuff like, "Whatever Genesis is happening here, this might not be giving us a straightforward account." I mean, so this is not what I'm suggesting is not, man. We need to. We need to fix this. We're scared. We're on our heels because of evolutionary theory. We got to find some way to make scripture fit that. Um, and so this is not just a reactionary move. But even before you had this kind of pressure from the scientific world, you had the early church fathers saying, "Something's going. You know, let's not push this too far. Um, it can't mean exactly that." Um, and so whether it's Origen or Augustine, you get them saying, "Yeah, this is not a literal." seven 24-hour days. Um, and I think that's really important to, to bear in mind. Um, and even early on, when evolutionary theory kind of showed up on the scene, there were Christians who were like, oh, okay, we can roll with this. Like I mentioned recently, um, or last week, uh, Darwin was, um, he's buried at uh, Westminster, um, and uh, the priest who resided over his funeral said something to the effect of, for those who think that science and faith, are, or his findings and faith are necessary in conflict, they're wrong. He should be buried here, even if he wasn't a believer. He's, I think he kind of died an agnostic. Uh, but, but he's studying God's creation, and so we shouldn't fear that. Um, and I wish I knew all the history, but in many ways, there was more of an American reaction to it uh, that created all this fear, um, that then got attached to the only people who are faithfully reading scripture are those who are taking it very rigidly, straightforwardly. Um, and I, yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, so that, that does bring up something that I was, um, that kind of dovetails into the next piece of all this is that uh, Christians from early on recognize the importance of studying what is called the book of nature. Uh, that is, because we believe that God created everything. There's this expectation that, that creation can help reveal something of, of uh, God's beauty and his goodness. And so you have uh, monks who are uh, retaining the literature of the day. So we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have a lot of the, the classics um, if the monks wouldn't have been copying them down. So they weren't just copying Christian literature down, they were copying all kinds of stuff down because they assume that where we find truth, it's... God's truth, uh, or um, the first universities were were founded uh, by Christians because they believed that studying uh, nature and uh, seeking truth uh, was part of what it means to be Christian. God created, and so we're going to look for how God has revealed Himself in the world. So we don't fear science; we see it as this is this is part of of learning about who God is. So they studied the Book of Nature uh, and this Book of Revelation of Scripture, and they expected them to to go together. Um, whether it's in the book of Acts, where Paul can say something like, um, you should have known this, or in Romans, he's like, you know, they should know by nature these things. There's a sense in which 
nature reveals God. Um, and because of that, it might suggest that uh, when the scientific community is, uh, particularly those who are experts in the field, are fairly convinced about something, um, that uh, rather than being just fearful about it, we might ask, uh, can this, um, this align with our reading of Scripture? And if there's a conflict, is it because there's a necessary conflict between science and Scripture, or might it be a conflict between science and the way we interpret that Scripture? And I think what uh, many of us uh, who have been kind of leaning into this field are finding is that, oh, really the conflict is between a particular interpretation of Scripture and the findings of, um, of uh, cosmology or evolutionary biology, um, rather than... Um, a conflict with scripture in particular. Yeah. So, um, let me, let me figure something out. Um, it seems to me that creation in and of itself is a conflict with science. Because it predates science and it involves things that don't behave, behave according to the periodic table, if you want to bury it down to that. So, when Jesus rose from the dead, that violated science. Right? When Jesus healed the sick, that violated science. So, <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm not following some of what you're saying. You remember I'm yeah. the simple one in the group. So, bring it down so the idea no, this is important that you bring up. So the idea is not that God's acts in the world have to be limited to what we can prove by science, or that God's acts in the world uh, have to be explainable by science. God can act beyond the bounds of what we can, what we can reproduce or what we can prove. Uh, so the resurrection uh, is certainly going beyond the norm. The virgin birth is going beyond the norm. Uh, creation out of nothing, that doesn't happen. So that is still very much beyond the bounds of science. Um, but the idea is something like uh, there doesn't need to be a necessary conflict with science. So to say it goes beyond doesn't mean it's in conflict. It just means science can take us here, and revelation might push beyond that. So it's important, I think, I'm to sure recognize. I agree with that. I mean, it, I feel like the miraculous goes in direct conflict with science. And, or, or maybe, unless you think that the, the spiritual world and the scientific world interact with each other in some kind of scientific way. I'm not sure that they do. Yeah, so... Uh, I just don't know that conflict is the right word. I think it's only in conflict if you think that science is the... Um, I mean, is it breaks the laws of science. Yeah, so I would say... When you walk on water, you break the laws of, I'm denser than water. Yeah, I, breaking, you can say breaking, I just think it makes more sense to say uh, that you can go beyond the limits of science, which is maybe different than saying breaking. Yeah, I see a hand over here. I, I tend to think of these things in literary terms. Mm -hmm. And would it make sense to make the analogy of the guy that wrote the book can edit the book any way he wants. Mm -hmm. But if you're dealing only with what's on the pages of the book, of the copy of the mm -hmm. book you have, there's only so much that you can do with yeah. it. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of how to say this, in a, and then I'll call on you, Chris. Um, God is not bound by the terms, uh, or by what, uh, yeah, the, the boundaries of science. God is beyond that. Um, but it seems as though he has designed the world to work in a particular way. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we, we certainly, uh, and this is part of the reason that, that Christians formed universities and stuff, because they believe God is a God of order, and he has created the world to have a particular kind of order. And while he might work beyond that at times in miraculous ways, uh, there is still a basic order to how he's created things. And so that basic order um, still might point to who God is, and we would expect uh, that it wouldn't necessarily be in tension with who God is uh, or with God's way of working. It's just not the only way that God has designed things. Chris? Um, I think I think about science maybe differently than it's even being talked about right now. Uh, Science is a set of tools used to understand the world around us. Mm -hmm. They're inherently inadequate tools. Uh, Otherwise, we would we would have arrived at perfect toolness mm-hmm. or whatever, <laughs> um, and we could uh, never never achieve a better observation of this world. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, 200 years ago, to suggest uh, humans could fly uh, in something called an airplane was is ridiculous. It's impossible. We all know it's impossible according to mm-hmm. science. Um, and now we're we we do it safely, frequently. Um, it has an effect on Hilton. <laughs> it's a miraculous um, so the science is not fixed uh, science is evolving and it's a set of tools to make observations of the world that hopefully become better and better and better and the way I think of science is the better we get at observing the world uh, the better we may understand what's miraculous and and see that, oh, just because we understand it doesn't make it not miraculous. <clears throat> we understand childbirth. Is that nothing now? Is it just so simple? It's, it's amazing every time. How does that yeah. happen every time? Yeah, so one thing we might distinguish, this is maybe helpful here, you've got the tools of science where we're doing discovery and, and learning about nature. Um, and the tools of science can function within the realm of what we might call scientism. And in scientism, the only truths that can be discovered, the only reality, is what science can show us. That's unchristian. But there's another way in which the tools of science might function, let's say, within the Christian worldview. And it would say, the tools of science can teach us something about who God is and the way the world works, uh, but they are not the only um, gateway to truth, because we also believe in the revelation of Scripture. Um, So we might have science plus the revelation of Scripture, and that revelation of Scripture doesn't fit over here. So part of what I am trying to do in here is to say, um, are there ways in which uh, we can bring these two together? because the Christian assumption seems to be that science tells us something about who the Creator is, uh, and Scripture tells us something about who the Creator is. Um, And so, in something like a close reading of Genesis 1 and 2, well, you know what? That might leave the door open um, for uh, what is the larger scientific consensus about things, discoveries of cosmology and evolutionary biology. Does it prove it? But it, it says, you know, actually, rather than uh, assuming these might be intention, there's actually a way to make these go together. And that's kind of the ideal, is that they go together. I saw a hand here and then a hand over here. 
Perhaps the word is not conflict, but disruption. If we are talking about a transcendent God that's not operating because of the world, but separate and apart mm -hmm. from the world. A disruption, it's the distinction that mm -hmm. causes us to say that's not the law. And yeah. that's probably why it was so controversial and, and startling in a lot of ways. And so I, I don't know that I see it as conflict so much as utter disruption yeah. and confusion. And that, that's probably why it was Yeah. And this goes to, I think, our a Christian belief in God's transcendence. Because he is sovereign over, he can interact he can break his own rules or disrupt the rules. Um, but if you are in a strict scientific uh, worldview, then God's transcendence is out of the picture. And so there is no disruption or whatever word we might use. Yeah, I saw, yes. I read a book several years ago, and I don't remember a lot about it, but it was called The Language of God. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that's how I think of science, that God's multilingual and science is one of the ways he speaks to Yeah, it. yes. So that was the book that kind of got me into this field. Francis Collins, he's the guy who was the head of mapping the human genome. Uh, brilliant guy, head of the NIH now. Um, and uh, he was an atheist who turned believer because he was studying science and just saw the beauty of it and how it pointed to who God is. Um, and uh, so if you're interested in this field and want to go deeper, uh, that book started this whole BioLogos movement. And they've got podcasts, they've got all kinds of incredible resources. It's the best set of resources that I know uh, that's accessible to anybody, uh, BioLogos. Um, this is serious theologians and serious scientists uh, saying, um, these two, yeah, I like that bilingual language or multilingual uh, ways of, of getting at God's revelation. Uh, and I got to go to the BioLogos conference and stand next to um, Francis Collins. And we said the Lord's Prayer and sang the doxology together in this crowd. It was, it was a moving uh, experience uh, to get to do something like that. Um, you know, we as humans have a difficult time dealing with it, you know, when Sarah was told she was going to have a baby and she was almost yeah. 100, she laughed and, <laughs> and within herself. Sure, sure, I'm going to have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> so trying to understand this and deal with it at times can seem preposterous. Yeah. But it's not with God. Yeah. Um, so and, Josh, just yeah. so quick. So a lot of people we encounter are, are restricted to the tools of science. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I don't know, you don't have to answer this. It may be a bad question. How do we expand the conversation out of the tools of science to the, because if you say, I believe in Scripture, they say, well, I don't acknowledge yeah. Scripture, right? Yeah. But how do you bridge that gap when you're trying to start where they are? Yeah, well. Any thoughts there? So right? I, I do have a book coming out, and oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's a great book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he did, he did. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that we... If you do this, let's say you're in the scientific field, and all you have to go on is the tools of science. If you stick with this strictly, and most people don't play by the rules, but if you play by the rules of all science can tell you, it cannot tell you about morality, it cannot tell you about purpose in life, it cannot tell you about uh, how things are here, because something doesn't come from nothing. Um, and it cannot tell you about uh, what gives humans inherent dignity. So what I suggest is if someone finds himself here, you might say, how do you deal with life's big questions if you're going to be strictly here? But 
this is where the Christian worldview is so inviting, is you can learn about the nature of who God is, but you can also say, but let us tell you this beautiful story about why humans have inherent dignity, about why deep in our gut we have this sense that, that love, this kind of sacrificial love is good, and you can't get that from over here. Let me tell you why I believe humans have inherent dignity, because I believe that God made them, he gave them the image of God. He gave them this dignified vocation to care for the world. And he loved them so much that when they screwed up, he took on flesh and died for them. You want to know why I believe um, these things? It's because of this big story. So, Amen. the problem is not the tools of science. But the window in is to say, that doesn't get you anywhere. Not anywhere to what makes us human, what we really care about. And Christianity does like no other story. No other worldview. Um, so, um, you went and got me teared up. And I'm Sorry. trying to. <laughs> so, when's the book coming out? Uh, at, at the Pepperdine Lectures. Yeah, it should be out by then. So. When is that? Uh, end of April, beginning okay. of May, somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, so, some of you might be wondering what do we do with Adam? Um, and this is one of those places that is the hardest, probably the, one of the diffi most difficult issues in bringing these two together. Uh, because Adam does show up in the genealogies. Um, and so there are a few ways that people say um, we might make sense of, hold on to a view of something like evolutionary biology and still believe in uh, something like Adam. Uh, so um, I think one of the best ways, so I won't go into the various ways, I'll just give you what I think makes a lot of sense, and that's to see Adam as a historical figure, uh, but not necessarily the parent of all of the human race, but one whom God chose as a representative of the human race. Uh, and you already get, if you're reading Genesis 1 and you're wanting to stick to something more straightforward there, you already get the sense that there's other people around that aren't just their children. Um, and this is a move that you see in Scripture. The Messiah was chosen as one person to represent humanity. Uh, Adam seems, or Adam and Eve might seem to be uh, this representative of the human race that, that as, as the population might have begin to become what we would recognize as human. Uh, God breathes his spirit into them so they become more than animal. They become human and he chooses uh, to, to represent that population. Something like the role of a king. And this makes a lot of sense because that king brought brokenness and death into the world. Well, death in a particular way. And the true king, uh, the incarnate king, brought healing and wholeness. So I think that's a way to bring this parallel together. Um, I've got to finish this, and okay. then uh, if I if I have time, um, so uh, if I'm gonna if I could wrap this up in a couple ways. Um, first, I would say um, if you're asking, how do we know when the Bible is giving us something like a straightforward account, uh, and when it's more like parable or fable? How, how do we distinguish that? Um, well, first, we try to pay attention to the genre that uh, this is communicated in. And often, we know, oh, this is poetry, this is parable. Sometimes, it's difficult to tell, like in Genesis 1 and 2. So, for further help, we then look to the larger witness of Scripture. Um, does, does the Bible always give us this uniform um, account of exactly how you know, this took place? Well, 
with something like creation, it seems as though scattered throughout Scripture you have various accounts. Now, you might be able to, to mush them all together, but it may be that this shows flexibility uh, because the Bible is not um, always um, uh, throughout talking about a seven-literal-day creation, but it is always talking about God as creator. And then another way that we might navigate um, <coughs> figuring out when is this straightforward history uh, or when is this truth being taught in a different maybe genre is to tune our ears to what other Christians have thought throughout the ages. If we find that early church fathers and later, uh, uh, later Christians um, saw uh, some flexibility, then that gives us uh, some... Um, at least some pause to say, well, maybe we have something to learn from those who've gone before. Uh, and it, when you have um, Augustine and uh, Origen and C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham uh, all saying, yeah, I can make sense of evolution and scripture, that's like, oh, okay, maybe we don't need to think the sky is falling. Uh, maybe these Christians whom we respect throughout the centuries um, well, obviously, Augustine Origen didn't say evolution, but they said this might not be literal accounts. Um, but Billy Graham and C.S. Lewis were apparently okay with evolution. Uh, that should give us, um, yeah, a little bit of pause to say, you know what, maybe, maybe it's our interpretation of Scripture that could be off, um, and rather than there being this huge scientific conspiracy um, happening. Um, and uh, if I'm going to bring all this back, to our four circles. Uh, as we think about this as Christians, um, I think what we find again and again central to all this is that God is creator and he is the transcendent and imminent creator. You move outside of that, that's moving outside of the Christian faith. That is a non-negotiable. Um, that is one of those things where you take away God as creator or transcendent or imminent uh, and it's no longer the Christian story. Um, what might fall in the necessary category, uh, things that we still believe but aren't as central, but we still don't give up on, is uh, the goodness of the material world. God created, he called it good, and we know from the biblical plotline that he uh, has died and uh, that he is going to come again and restore, even if it's going to go through this crazy purging process. Creation is good. It's not just this random accident or this place of evil, as Gnostics and other worldviews might think, or as Buddhists or Hindus might say, we're looking to escape. Christians are looking to restore. Uh, we also see as necessary the belief in the inherent dignity and vocation of all humans. We don't budge on that. Humans are made in God's image. But through what we've looked at as we uh, search, if you think of our acronym, as we've listened to, um, or as we might listen to um, scientific community, as we might listen to the larger witness of Scripture, as we might listen to Christians who've gone before us, we might say there's probably... I think pretty definitely should be some flexibility regarding the mechanics, exactly how, and the timeline, exactly how long uh, creation came about. So, seven-day creationists uh, should feel like they can be in community uh, with those who believe that God created through uh, the work of the Big Bang and evolutionary biology. And, on the other hand, those who uh, hold to the kind of scientific consensus of cos cosmology and evolutionary biology should feel that they could be in community with those who hold to a more literal reading of Genesis. There can be some flexibility here because there is some lack of clarity. Um, and uh, 
And then obviously what's outside is to deny what is central or what's necessary. Um, and that takes us to 1048. So um, how about uh, I'll let you guys go. Then if you have questions, come up and, uh, and ask me. And yeah, thank you. <laughs>